Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Well, Chris, my friend, we're back here on another episode of the Red Tree Pod. Hey, Davis. How are you doing? Good, bro. Yeah, doing well. Uh, it's um, it's snowy out, so there's there's that again. <laughs> I feel like I said that last time as well. <laughs> I, I like to pretend I I, um, I like snow and I don't, so it's always on my mind. But um, not even during Christmas, you don't like snow. I actually I actually do. I actually, it's pretty today. It's, it's a, a pretty it's a pretty one. Yeah, but yeah, no, doing good. Um, just finished writing uh, uh, articles on our uh, on our website now, um, redtreegrace.com, but article on a movie I just watched called Spirited. So it's kind of been on my mind lately about it's a Christmas Carol remake, and I won't spoil it here, but um, it was fresh for me. It's just a, a movie that had a spin on uh, a kind of a classic that I always enjoy, but always had kind of some problems with, with uh, the whole Christmas Carol formula of, um, hey, you know, you just saw yourself in hell, and all of a sudden, um, and you had the daylights scared out of you by three different Grim Reapers, basically, or at least one of them, you know? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're just super happy, and you're buying... Tiny Tim a turkey and, uh, you know, basically trying to pay off your sin and, and you're not worried about that, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, aren't you worried that's maybe not enough? And and this uh, this movie Spirited, which is on Apple TV, um, it kind of had a, a different spin on that. So I wrote a, a thing on that uh, and enjoyed I guess riffing on that a little bit. So, and, I, and you and I were talking about that last week. So it's been on my mind a bit. But I don't yeah. know you, you saw that too, didn't you? I did but, because of because of you. I did give us the teaser. And it's, it's not a spoiling, but I mean, yeah, you texted me even before I saw it, and it made me want sure. to see it. The, sure. the, uh, the real pitch, kind of the tag of like it, the change doesn't happen through seeing yourself in hell. It happens. How? Yeah, I think you know. I, I think there's less optimism and more love is how I'd put it. You mm-hmm. know, there's a little bit less optimism with uh, with the human heart and the maybe potential for interchange. Uh, on on the self, you know, kind of putting that on us, and a bit more on being loved and being having having mutual respect with someone else and friendship and even sacrificial love. So I won't go too much farther than that. Yeah. I don't I don't want to spoil it, but I think that's that was refreshing, and I think just felt more realistic as well. So it, it just kind of surprised me yeah. uh, as didn't expect to see that this this season, but yeah. So anyway. That's great, man. And I, I really liked the article. I, I actually really liked the movie as well, uh, especially going into it with that little teaser yeah. that you gave me of the difference in how people change. And Yeah, yeah. Uh, it also has Will Ferrell, and I could watch him read it. I like Will books, Ferrell. So. I, yeah, he's makes me laugh just looking at him probably. But yeah. So, but how are you, Davis? How's yeah, things? I'm, I'm doing, uh, I'd say I'm about 80% right now. Uh, I went down with that influenza A that was just ripping around Minneapolis. And I became a statistic in getting it, and I became another <laughs> statistic in having the man flu. I went down mm. just so hard. 
Um, and my wife often gives me a hard time with how hard I can go down with a sickness. I just, just need to be horizontal for a few yeah. days. And uh, <laughs> right. yeah, the thing was just, it was just brutal. I, I likened it to the bubonic plague. Yikes. That's, um, that's a, a high bar, low bar, maybe you'd low say. Low bar, very low bar. I guess it's and low. And I guess I've yeah. never had the bubonic, so it's a little bit of a reach, but right. I'm, I can be dramatic. Well, it sounds I mean, bad though. It does. I mean, bubonic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on the mend yeah. now and I'm excited Good. to be in your company and opening yeah, up the Yeah, you too, man. And uh, today we got some very fun passages here. We're going to be hanging out in Exodus 19 and 20. Then for our psalm, we're going to be looking at Psalm 46. Before we jump back into 1 Thessalonians, we got 2.17 through 3.5. And then uh, you wanted to revisit James 2. We felt like we had some more meat on the bone yeah. for our but what about section. And Looking again, forward to that. That'll be a, good. If you're a new listener at the end of the podcast, we kind of like to do a but what about section where we look at a passage that seems to go against basically everything we're trying to do at Red Tree. And uh, we find that the more you double click on something, grace just makes itself available and makes it clear. So we'll be doing that again with James 2, the epistle of straw, like Luther liked to call it. Uh, I think he changed his mind on that. Is that Maybe a good not. thing? or a, Probably not. Actually, Pro- no. Probably no. not. Yeah. Straw, like, do we like straw? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if but. it's in a sippy cup, then yeah, I will take the straw. Yeah, there you go. That kind of straw. Yeah. All right. Well, we're in Exodus 19 to 20 to start. And uh, for context, God has delivered Israel from the oppression of Pharaoh. And this is a watershed moment of the Old Testament. God had just raised up Moses to come and set his people free. And, and they walked through the waters that separated them from uh, the promised land. And it looked like sure destruction. God did a miracle in opening the waters. The people are delivered on safe ground. Pharaoh and his, and, and his uh, army follow them, but they're swallowed up by the sea. And it looks like, oh my goodness, all the promises that seem to, to be given to Abraham are now coming true. And we are going to sit pina coladas in the promised land as Israel. Uh, but then all of a sudden there's this left turn in the story through the introduction of the law. So the left turn of the law comes on in Exodus 19 and 20. This is when God actually delivers at Mount Sinai. Some uh, titles even of Exodus 19 will say at Mount Sinai. Uh, the law is given. And a, a big thing to note here is verse 4 and 5 in Exodus 19. There's this if-then statement uh, that is ultimately given uh, to the people of God that says, if you do this, if uh, I, I, the Lord who have delivered you from Pharaoh uh, on eagle's wings, now what I'm going to do is, is give you this line. If you do this, then you will be my people. You will be a nation set apart. You will be a royal priesthood. You will belong to me. And for, for lots of uh, theologians and, and those who are going to teach the scriptures, this becomes what seems to be like a pattern of redemption. Some people teach it this way, where deliverance has come and now God is continuing to give deliverance and grace by offering this law that teaches people how to live. And and when you're reading left to right in the story, that that looks like that's certainly what's happening. Uh, Unfortunately, though, as the story continues, uh, or we might say uh, uh, interpretation takes place when we interpret right to left. And so the New Testament talks about these events and, and actually really centers these ideas and asks questions of like, why is God doing this? Yeah. Why did God give the law at all if right. it doesn't participate in salvation? And one of the things that comes clear is that this is a conditional covenant predicated on commands that if you just even reverse the command, if you do this, then you will have life. If you don't do this, then you will have 
death. Death. <laughs> it's really, really not good. Yeah. Uh, very bad news, yeah. in fact. And <laughs> death it, is also bad. Like straw. Like straw. So we're finding a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> we don't like death either. Yes. And so this introduction of the law actually comes with this freighted command that says, you have to do this. And if you don't, you're going to get exile, which is ultimately going to be a picture of, of death. And, and the, separation from God, which kind of goes back to Eden too, right? Like exactly. exiles, this repeated theme of separation from your creator, from the land of goodness and blessing and life and, and all that too. So it's basically the worst thing really that, that could be kind of pronounced upon them for their disobedience. Yeah. And this is a good connection to actually go back to the garden because uh, there are two trees in the garden, like we've made mention of in previous episodes. You have the tree of life, which doesn't get a lot of stage time in those early chapters of Genesis, but it is going to take a lot of prominence later in the story. But you also have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think it's it's actually appropriate to draw a straight line from that tree when Adam and Eve choose to, to eat of this tree. And, and what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if not the tree of the, of the law of the law? Yeah. It's telling you what to do and what to avoid. And that's a lot of what God is going to articulate on Sinai when he's saying this, I would have you do and this, I would have you not do. And so really what we have here at Sinai is, is a clearer articulation of what humankind already has. And that's one of the big surprises of the Bible Yeah, is that as the New Testament comes along, these stories are reread. And one of Paul's great uh, realizations is that, oh my goodness, Israel got more of what humanity already has. Mm. What, what advantage has the Jew, he asks in Romans. And, right. and in, at first he says, much in every way, you guys have had access to the things of God and you're a little bit closer to the story. But really, what advantage has the Jew? He asked the question twice. And the second time, he just goes, well, none at all, actually, right? Because you're just, yeah. you're getting what humanity has always had, which is life under the law that's meant to drive you to something greater once the energy or the fuel of the law spills out on the highway like a broken Tesla yeah. battery. Yeah, yes, yes, love it. Love that image. It's really great. So Exodus 19 and 20 then pick up in this story, it sounds like, a little bit later on, you were saying? Or? Yeah. And so I, I'd love to hear you to even describe a little bit of the the Ten Commandments or when it is in Exodus yeah. 20 when he starts to, to uh, actually read these off to Moses. Definitely. Uh, you've done some, some I've, I've learned a yeah. lot from you on that topic. And sure. Yeah. So Exodus 20 talks a bit about um, the Ten Commandments themselves, the Decalogue, we call it. And I think one of the things that you and I are very interested in, Davis, and many others, is just how to read that in light of redemptive history and the more particular question of how does Jesus fulfill them. And so I think one of the ways to see that is just to kind of look at how they're described and look at the words themselves, like do not commit adultery and do not murder and and do not covet and do not steal and ask the question of where do those things kind of come up in Jesus's life and ministry? And then more particularly, if the law is a curse, if it's something that like Galatians 4 says, Jesus was born under the law and Martin Luther uh, was helpful as, as uh, were many other commentators throughout history, but Martin Luther was helpful in seeing that this is a curse. This is not just a, a timeline thing, but a curse thing. To be born under the law is to be born under its weight or its curse. And so um, uh, with that idea then in mind, we, when you look at the commandments, you see things that Jesus in one sense kept perfectly for us. In another sense though, he kind of took on the brunt of them. Like I like to look at the, the do not steal commandment and see how Jesus kind of became a thief, like a petty criminal on the cross when he died. Uh, specifically, the gospel writers are careful to show among criminals or among petty thieves or uh, among barbarians, basically, you know, or, or non-Romans. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's one way Jesus fulfills it is not just by being a giver, and he is, uh, and that's something that the law doesn't do for us, right? Uh, it, he generously gives, he gives life, and he gives it graciously. So he, in that way, he does, he does the proactive side of what the law was saying don't do, but he also takes on the dark side. He takes 
takes on the I became the stealer. I became the one that um, that you are. I, I became like you in your humanness, but also in your thievery. Uh, so you can look to me for life because I'm bearing that sin for you. Um, and so the good life then is, I think, in that. The good life's in that good news. The entrance to the promised land, we, we might say, is, is found not in the obedience to the law, but in the one who... Um, obeyed for us, but also kind of took on the curses of it as well and replaced it with a newer covenant. And that's so, that's so crucial to see that in, in reading back on Exodus 20, because I, I do think that depending on where you're, you know, inter- who's helping you interpret passages like this, you, you do get just a lot of quirky stuff here, uh, especially when it comes to those who are commenting on it, uh, like two mediocre pastors with a multi-dollar studio. One might say. One might say. <laughs> uh, but no, I was, I was even just kind of bruising uh, or, or just scanning through some of the commentaries that I have here. And uh, one that just made me cringe was talking about how what's happening here is God is showing what it looks like to live in blessed community with him yeah. as this law is given. And if I just kind of shudder at that for for at least two reasons. One, um, if you interpret Exodus twenty apart from Jesus, like you just like yeah. you showed us how to do it in light of Jesus, but right. if you don't have him there, what are we talking about? We're talking about community with God. Right. We're missing the thing that yeah. God ultimately has given us for having yep. a close and intimate relationship with Him. And two, I, I do think God is is being uh, kind in giving the law, but it's not in the way that we think. Our intuition needs to be interrupted in the way that we're reading this. Right. Uh, in seeing some of the in the context clues, and especially how the New Testament is going to talk about this. So the New Testament, especially Hebrews twelve, I think it's eighteen to twenty four, is going to draw out this image and really show the response of the Israelites in the presence of the law. And I'll just read you Exodus uh, 20, verses 18 to maybe 21. It says, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountains in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the thing that the New Testament looks back on and goes, wasn't that terrifying? Wasn't approaching that mountain like the scariest thing ever? And didn't you see how the Israelites ultimately were saying to Moses, please tell God to shut up. Yes. Tell him to stop talking to us or we're going to die. Moses, you can talk to us, but but please tell God to stop talking to us. Yeah. This is, I, this is the reason I shudder when I read commentators saying, this is the blessed relationship with God that he longs for. It's it's not. It's not. It's, it's, it's just not. It's simply yeah. not. The, the relation. Who wants a relationship with somebody that makes us shudder in fear, asking the other to please stop talking? Yeah. That's, that's no relationship at all. So good. That's a relationship with a terrifying schoolmaster, uh, or yeah, it just it makes me just kind of my armpits start to sweat a little bit. Yeah, and, and maybe it's helpful here to remember that there are things that God calls not good in the Bible, like in the beginning when Adam was alone, it wasn't good, right? And so I think sometimes we kind of just have this fear over saying, well, it's in the Bible, it's got to be good. And it's just, it's a story, right? It's not a list of prepositions or proverbs or something like that, but it has a dynamic flow to it rather than a static flow. And so in the same way that it wasn't okay that Adam didn't have a partner, you know, the law created separation with us and God. And so therefore it, it wasn't good for us to be alone. Or you could say, for God to be alone from us. Like he saw that separation and, and saw it wasn't good. And so the law can have this like uh, not goodness about it that can be replaced later and remedied. And the, the story's none the lesser for it. It's actually the, all the better, all the greater. Mm. 
So. Yeah. And just to close, I know we're spending a lot of time on this one, but this is such a watershed moment in the Old Testament and getting this one right, I think unlocks so much of the storyline. Um, you do see, I love that. Mo- it said Moses telling the people not to be afraid. The Hebrews passage actually says Moses himself was shaking in his was, boots, filling right. his pampers, terrified. And so it's just kind of ironic that Moses is put up up front here like, hey, guys, don't be scared. Meanwhile, he is like a duck. Yeah, Hebrews interprets it well for us. Isn't right, that cool? Right. How the, the New Testament authors are like, we're doing theology here and interpreting what's kind of really going on. Yeah, <laughs> it's really helpful. Let me help you understand this. Exactly. And then the last thing, there's a little, there's like kind of a hidden typology moment there where Moses does actually look a lot like Jesus where the people are remaining at a distance from God. They're very afraid in their sin. The law is being read and they, and they want to run. And it says Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And I just see a lot of Jesus doing that, uh, especially through the cross. He's the one who's walking into the darkness, taking on our darkness so that we might have access to God again, even though we were once at a distance. Uh, but I also think practically just to see it says that there is a thick darkness here and that's where God was in this passage. Uh, personally, as you think of your life, you, you have things that resemble a thick darkness. You have things that look like suffering, things that look like relationships that are harmed right now that you don't want to look at. You have things that you don't want to think about because they cause you anxiety. These things that look like thick darkness in your life, uh, there's a huge sense of comfort that comes from seeing this is where God actually is. The thing that you're afraid to look at, look, looking under the bed or in your closet, God's already there, so you don't have to fear about going in there because he's going to meet you in it, even in the hardest of stuff. And there's just a huge gospel Love that. upside down flip as, as I think we see this passage. So Love that. That's enough time in Exodus. Let's turn here to Psalm 46. I'm just going to hand you the mic here, Chris. Talk to us about Psalm 46. Psalm 46. You and I love this psalm. We've both preached it before, and and uh, it's a common funeral psalm, actually. Uh, I, I think um, so you kind of look on a lot of like funeral templates you might find in different books or even online or talking to other pastors. I've just found that over my life that it's a common one to read. So it's consoling in that regard, acknowledges pain, acknowledges kind of calamity. There's some very dark uh, imagery in it. And then it, it really offers so it offers a solution and a consolation, but really a God-centered one, not kind of a just, um, it's not just words, you know, it's not just kind of um, simple words, but it's actually God. So, so yeah, we there's a lot of things I think you and I like to talk about with this Psalm. Uh, one is, um, uh, when I look at this kind of movement uh, from this mountain being thrown into the sea, which is a calamity, uh, to a river that makes glad, and then to even this invitation to come and see what the Lord has done, I see a lot of movement from law to grace there. Uh, because elsewhere in the Bible, the law or the mount, the temple mount being thrown into the sea, which is something Jesus uh, visits, uh, you could say, uh, in Mark 11, when he talks to the disciples about that um, days before his death, kind of looks at that mountain and says, if you have faith, you can look at this mountain or say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, which is a sign of curse. Um, I think God is kind of like he does elsewhere in uh, his His own word and kind of uh, covenantal story. He kind of self-edits it almost, you know, he kind of takes parts of it and says, you're done. You're, you've, this epoch has served its purpose and and now it's, it's, it's done. And I think that's kind of what's happening here is when you see the mount of the law being taken up and thrown into the sea, we don't have to fear because a better covenant's coming and one that we will kind of stand back and just watch. It won't be a do this and then you will live uh, type of thing that we were just talking about. It will be a look at this river and uh, it will be a, a um, look at the work that God is doing. Uh, look at even the desolations, it says. I think there's a lot of cross imagery in that. Uh, the abomination of desolation, I think, um, fits 
best with the idea of the Son of God suffering the worst torment uh, ever, including being laid upon by our sins rather than trying to think, kind of fit that in to some kind of historical extra biblical narrative, which I think people do sometimes, which it may fit there as sort of to in a secondary way. But I think like Jesus is that desolation. He takes it on uh, as well to uh, to give us life. And so just overall, some cool movement there, I think, from a uh, lot of grace and from the, the um, mountain, really the Mount Sinai, you could say in some sense, uh, even though it's Temple Mount, I think being kind of um, set aside or cursed in the sea and, and to give way for promise and grace and come and see uh, what, what the Lord has done. Mm. How about yeah. you? Yeah, I, I really love all of that, um, especially yeah, the abomination that causes desolation. I think yeah. that's, a, that's a title in Matthew 26 or something. It is. It comes up right before his death. Yeah. It feels super end of the world-y. And I think uh, we do well anytime that we see end of the world to first think that's when God died. The, God, the world really did end when God died right. in one sense, when right. Jesus himself was crucified. And on the other side of that, this is when a new world is beginning and it doesn't therefore have this future-oriented desolation, abomination, big Asian word. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that's that's really, really good. I, I'm always just taken aback by, yeah, the, the, the psalm begins with such calamitous language that makes you think of all the troubles that you're experiencing. This was a I think I preached this psalm during COVID when it was first starting. And so it was just fitting of just like, the world feels like it's falling beneath our feet. We have no idea. Anyone who says they know what's going on doesn't know what's going on. And there are no experts on any of this because everything is quote unquote unprecedented. And so in the midst oh, of- that word, oh, unprecedented. God, yeah, don't, don't you just say twitch it. a little yeah, bit? <laughs> you too. Um, so in the midst of that, when it feels like, yeah, the, the world, it, there's no there's no safe footing for me to, to put my foot down because it's just falling. Uh, in the midst of that, I love that the psalm kind of interrupts itself and brings in this river that just has language that slows you down and makes you go, oh, I want to be there. What's that like? Um, and that river has so many connection points onto to Jesus and specifically the blood that flows from his side is like a river that those who are cleansed by it, those who are touched by it, uh, are given new life. Jesus himself saying, anyone who comes to me, they they will drink from a river. It's really good. Uh, and that's always yeah. dynamic and on the move. Or the woman at the well, he says, if you drink this, you'll, you'll never thirst again. Or Revelation having a picture of a river that's always flowing and giving life to the nations. Uh, a river is very central to... Jesus's own interpretation of what he's going to do in his death. Right. And the fact that it's going to give peace and a sense of joy to the city of God, like the psalm is talking about, causes an interruption to the deep, deep troubles that we experience in this life. Uh, and it, the imagery that, that, that often comes to my mind when I read this, and I think I went to this illustration as well when I had the chance to preach it, is, is in uh, the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan, kind of this Christ-like figure, this lion, is, uh, is interacting with this child who has been uh, lost in the woods all night and she wakes up parched and she hears the sound of this babbling brook and walks towards it. And as she gets closer, it's this rushing river. And as she's about to take this big drink, she sees the lion and she's terrified. And uh, let me, let me pull up the quote. Actually, it's just, it's, it's worth reading. It says, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion. If only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. And she heard this voice. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken her on the edge of a cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. 
Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Very fitting. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Love that. So good. It kind of reminded me, too, some of the stuff you said before about the river itself being like the blood. You know, it reminded me of uh, Eden again, which is kind of cool. It's come up a couple of times this podcast already. And the imagery there, too, being of uh, rivers in the first garden. And one of them's named Havala, which I believe means to bring forth with pain, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Before the fall even comes in, it comes into the world, pain and death's being talked about, but how Jesus is, is that river and how that river is the glad thing, how that river is better than the mountain of the law. Uh, which has had its day and it's being set aside. Uh, and, and now we have the better, the better thing, which is, you know, something that's outside of us and objective and beautiful and worthy of gazing on and something that's given rather than something we earn. Uh, yeah. And there is no other stream like the text says, right? Like it's just, this yeah. is Jesus only one. blood. Yeah. Is, it's the only stream. It's the only one. Well, let's turn the page now to first Thessalonians. I'm just going to actually read this passage because the typology I think is so thick Great. that it's yeah. worth hearing. Great. Uh, so this is first Thessalonians two seventeen three to three uh, verse five. It says, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker, in God's service in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So good. Yeah, I, I love this passage and for many reasons, but I, I love the typology in it. It's not something that, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're used to seeing in the letters, the, ty the typological symbolic dimension. But, you know, when Paul longs to see his people face to face, which he does so much in his letters, he's such a pastor and he loves Christians so well, uh, his churches. But then Satan blocks their way, it says, or hinders them. And then when he could bear it no longer, it says he sends Timothy to encourage them and establish them in their faith. And I think even later it talks about how he suffers for them and has affliction and he wants to remind them of how much he suffered for them. It's like, who does that sound like? You know, if you kind of look at it that way, even chronologically, just kind of the problem, the resolution and the outcome, uh, 
sure makes Paul sound a lot like God the Father and Timothy a lot like Christ himself, who is this who is the son of Paul in a way, at least son in the faith, he says elsewhere, who's sent to bring about restoration and faith and kind of uh, oneness and unity uh, with them. And then that outcome just being just that, establishment in the faith and encouragement and Paul's maybe peace uh, in knowing that they're okay. Um, so the Thessalonians then I think are more of a picture of us uh, in, in this regard. Um than, than Paul. And then the words, we long to see you then. What I like about this is that, you know, and we see this again, in a lot of Paul's letters, but this, uh, we long to see you and could bear it no longer apply more to God, I think, than maybe just a moral lesson for church leaders mm. on how to love their church as well, which it's, you know, there's maybe something there, a good thing to follow and, um, and to see as, um, as an example. But I think there's something more. I think there's, you know, to, Maybe borrow from C.S. Lewis one more time. There's a deeper magic, you know, I think in, in the letters when it comes to this, to see not just textbooks on Christian living, but living dramas uh, to the greatest story ever told when God sends his son to overturn satanic separation uh, for, uh, between us and him. Um, and that's really, I think, what's going on in Paul's letters primarily, uh, much more than um, just a, a rote textbook on on how to live our lives, you know. Which is so helpful. I mean, as we read the rest of the New Testament, there is such a tendency of, okay, the the climax has come. The world really has ended in Jesus' death and it's it's starting over again. Now, I think uh, we're so prone to read Sinai like the textbook of how to live that we're we're likely to do that again with the New Testament. Be like, okay, well, I'm going to look at Paul and he's going to show me how to live now. Right. And like you said, there there are good examples to follow. Absolutely. The point is not the example. The thing that uh, Jesus's own imagery for himself and how his spirit moves is that of a dynamic blowing of the wind or like a river, like we already mentioned, or fire. Uh, And these things are are on the move. Uh, The wind blows where it wishes, usually in new directions. And uh, usually how that's going to manifest is by seeing the story as God has decided to tell it. Which that's really is, great. Which is God the Father sending his son to overcome the things that stand in the way between him and uh, those whom he loves, though, those whom are his glory and joy. Right. Uh, it also stood out to me again just to see at the end of cha- or this passage in chapter 3, this, this expectation of persecution and suffering and hard things. It harkens back to, again, Exodus 19 of of Moses walking into the thick darkness. Why? Because that's where God is. God is in these things. And Paul, again, resembles that that Christ-like walking into the darkness because that's where God is. Right. We expect to find him there. That's really good. Love that. Which is encouraging. All right, let's turn uh, the page now and wrap up in James 2. Um, I, I don't know if I made mention of this last time, but I'm always really struck by just the simplest verse here in James 2. I think it's in verse 13, the end of verse 13 which is just in four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, it's a fitting actual passage to, to what we've been talking about this episode, just because uh, judgment is the language of Sinai. It's, it's a bearing down on what ought to be done. And the law is good, uh, but this judgment that comes to us is, it creates distance because we are those who have fallen short. And it, it, God's first covenant that comes along is something that does reveal uh, a wrongdoing and a in a distance that stands between his people uh, and himself, yes. and yet the mercy that follows in the second covenant, this deeper magic that comes along, is it looks a lot like mercy, and it changes lives. And uh, I think of this like the uh, Martin Luther King um, was correct in the way that he described how the arc of the universe bends towards justice. That's true. 
there's a judgment of wrongdoing and evil and wicked that uh, that God ultimately has an arc towards and is going to rain down uh, with a swift hand of justice. And yet, again, why I love Lewis's imagery so much is that there's a deeper magic, a deeper arc, you might even say, that bends towards mercy, that those who are wrongdoers, who recognize their own, who, who the work of the law has actually come in and confronted yes. and shown us like a cosmic mirror. That's great. You are in need of rescue. That that deeper magic of mercy comes in and there is a greater arc of the universe that, that does turn towards mercy, which is news that. that I think I need to hear. Yeah, that's great, Davis. Tomorrow. Yeah, it kind of reminded me too of when Jesus in the gospel says that mercy is greater than sacrifice. You know, so he's even kind of saying there that even in the Old Testament, you see this, I think it might be quoting Hosea. I can't remember, but it's in context there where he's talking to the scribe and says, I think the scribe got kind of the right, the right answer too. He noticed that there was this kind of like uh, hierarchy of sorts, you know, of things. And, um, and Jesus picks up on it and says, mercy is greater than, go learn what this means. Mercy is greater than sacrifice. And you have this kind of uh, relationship between the two there, which I really like. So um, one other thing I think, uh, you know, when, the, when James 2 says that faith without works is dead, like I think... Um, you know, one thing I, when I look at the word dead, I, I think uh, I'm reminded biblically, theologically, that the way the Bible handles that is uh, is through Jesus. Jesus dies for us and rises again. And so I think like if this passage ever causes anxiety, we need to remember that it's, you know, sometimes as Christians, we have dead faith. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians. It means that there's an opportunity for us to experience resurrection, you know? So in other words, this can be handled very binarily, you know, either it's dead or it's alive. There's no middle ground. There's no nuance. Uh, but in Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. But he still calls them a church, and he still talks to them as though he's he's his people. And so the warning's still intact. There's still a sharpness here and a call, I think, to look at our, uh, as Paul says elsewhere, examine your examine your life and look at your heart. Do, are you, or as James says, like, are you like the demons that just acknowledge his existence? Or have you really received him and have a true faith uh, that is uh, genuine and is of the heart? And in that sense is, uh, is of works. It, uh, it's active in our faith. It truly believes Jesus can raise the dead and is, and is, is real. So I just think that that's an important thing to recognize. It's, it's very easy because otherwise we're going to go back to ourselves and, and have so much anxiety about, is my faith dead? Or was that, you know, um, motive I had there and that good work totally pure or not, you know, and I think, you know, and this is super, it sounds super obvious to say it, but it's, it's not when we tackle James too. Sometimes we go back to Jesus when we're struggling, you know, we, we don't strive ourselves to have a faith that is right. extremely, uh, to use the words here, language or language work centered. Like we go back to the one who raises the dead and we, we find life in him. And he's the one that gives, gives that genuineness and that trueness, I think, to our relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And did you want to comment at all on Abraham and Rahab? Why, why go here in the end of James to make this point about a, a faith that's active? And- yeah, it's. I even think we talked last week a bit about it, or maybe we forgot to. But um, they're uh, they're they're interesting characters to reference if if works in James two is like rote morality. You know, because Abraham pimps out his wife a couple of times, I think, right? And he's uh, he literally comes out of a house of idolatry when God calls him. And then Rahab is a prostitute. So uh, I, I think that if works, you know, if by... Um, 
you know, if faith without works is dead, if by works there, we mean rote morality, it's a strange couple of people to pick. Uh, if we're talking about law observance or something like that, there must be something else going on. And, and I think it's a genuine faith. I think like Hebrews 11 highlights these two as well as, uh, as examples of faith to look at as people who believe that God could raise the dead, like Abraham, when he brought his son, Isaac up Mount Moriah and was, was going to kill him, you know, and Rahab as well, who welcomed the spies, it says when they came into the land. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing. And I think that's, you know, we could probably talk for hours about this, but I think it's still something when we study it and that we'd encourage people to think like, this is more than just morality. This is a, a radical kind of faith that's being encouraged. Like it's almost like we're circling back to faith that ends up looking like, uh, you know, um, again, genuineness or, or activity or, or, or just highness, I think, rather than just a law observance, uh, because of uh, these these two and their very interesting story arc uh, themselves. Who we don't even know what happened, right? I mean, they they, they probably repented, sure, but at the same time, um, it doesn't say that. It doesn't highlight as they repented. You know, it says um, they they had a radical faith yeah. that um, that moved mountains. You know, and so I think there's something there for us. But, for sure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on the Red Tree Podcast.